0: If you have your Bibles with you or if you want to use your device, let me encourage you to start moseying towards Second Chronicles chapter 7. Um, if you don't know where Second Chronicles 7 is, it's page 661. Well, that may not help you with your Bible. If, if you're not that comfortable with your Bible, just open to the table of contents. You'll see it in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is where we're going to get to it in just a moment. Surveys that have been done in the last few years with those who attend church have revealed that there are three biblical topics that typically cause an enormous amount of guilt to rise in the followers of Jesus when they are addressed from the pulpit or in Sunday schools or community groups. Anybody want to try to guess what those three topics might be? Prayer, financial giving, and sharing your faith. So this morning, I'm going to be preaching on how you ought to be praying more about being more generous and about sharing more time with your friends to make sure they understand the gospel. I'm teasing. Well, two-thirds teasing. We are going to talk about prayer this morning. But I want to talk about prayer this morning as it engages us starting tomorrow with 21 days of prayer for ourselves and the church. But instead of just trying to load more guilt on anybody, what I want us to do is today and then the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at three different passages of Scripture that's going to answer a number of questions that you might have about prayer that you may never have found the answers to yet. And I actually want these passages to release us, to engage more in prayer as answers that we've been wondering about are finally answered. Now, you might actually be wondering, why are we doing 21 days of prayer? What's this prayer focus intended to be all about? And you might be thinking on the inside, Rick, I'm I'm no one special. And if you really knew what was going on inside of me, you would know how much of a mess I am. And so why would God care what I pray about? Well, whatever questions you might have about the whole idea and concept of prayer, can I encourage you, over these three weeks, let's face those wonderings. Let's not stuff them, but allow them to bubble to the surface. And even though we cannot do an extensive Uh, series on prayer, we're just going to look at three different passages instead. I believe these passages are going to allow the Word of God to speak to some of these key wonderings that will literally change the way you engage in prayer. So to get started this morning, I'd like to raise a question, and that is, how can we tell what is truly valuable to us? Or to put it in some other words, How can we clearly identify that which we highly treasure? What do we highly prize? Typically, there are three key behaviors that will reveal that which we truly prize or treasure. First, how much are we willing to spend on it? So, for example, why did you choose to buy an iPhone? When you could have gotten a similar phone with pretty much the same features for a third less from a different company. What does that say about what you value? Second, it's not just what we are willing to spend on something, but what are we willing to sacrifice for it? So you get a brand new car and suddenly you find yourself hand washing it at least twice a week. And when you go shopping, do you park in the closest empty spot to the front door of the store? No, you're parking way out at the end of the parking lot all by yourself, not because your car has got an attitude, but because you don't want anybody next to you opening their door and dinging the side of your new car. So you're willing to walk an, uh, an extra three or four minutes to get into that store because of your, the value you have placed in your car, your sacrifice for it. The third area is not just what we're willing to spend, what we're willing to sacrifice, but what we're willing to say no to so that we can say yes to it. So for those of us here this morning that are wearing wedding rings, there was a time, there was a day when you said yes to your spouse. And the value of that relationship that you have with him or her means that every day you are now saying no to others in order to keep saying yes to them because your spouse is so valuable. You treasure them. What you're willing to spend, what you're willing to sacrifice, what you're willing to say no to. So if we consider something to be cheap, you know, it, then, then it's, it's easily trashed. It doesn't get our attention. We don't really give it all that much thought. If it's not valued, we will not sacrifice for it. So keep that in mind as, as we turn in our Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 7. As you're headed there, if you're not already there, let me give you a little bit of background as we come to this little paragraph that we're going to examine this morning we're entering into a place in the Old Testament history where from at least a human perspective, this is the pinnacle of the Old Testament monarchy in Israel. In other words, David has died. The crown has been passed on to Solomon, his son. And if there's any wondering how the succession plan is going to work out, everyone is quickly put at ease. Because national prosperity and success is the order of the day. Good news dominates the newspapers every morning. And for 20 years, King Solomon's leadership has provided a climate where things, literally every year, got getting better and better and better. There's peace. The building projects are strengthening the nation's infrastructure. There's a genuine, genuinely, or Generally, there's a pretty high level uh, of spiritual commitment in the nation. People see dramatic signs of God's work. If you're here in 2 Chronicles 7, look at verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Wow. I mean, it was a great time to be a Jew in Israel. There was solidarity. There was a unifying focus. There was growth. There was accomplishment. God was on the move, and you can see it by public displays. So the climax of this period is right here in 2 Chronicles 7. It's the dedication of the brand-new temple. You know, if the History Channel had been invented back then, they would have dedicated several episodes of modern marvels to this building because the architecture was absolutely incredible. And so in light of all of this, Solomon organized a week-long celebration of, and that was extravagant. So look at the summary statement we're given in verse 11 and verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 7. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Wow, there is really good momentum going on here. God has heard Solomon's lengthy prayer that you can read back in chapter 6. This temple has God's divine approval as the place where worship of Him is, is going to be focused. But God wants to say some more things. So let's continue with verse 13. God says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence... Pestilence among my people. Whoa, 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 wait a minute here. Did you notice the dramatic shift that just went on? From all outward indications, things are going good in Israel, and suddenly God starts describing how his hand is going to bring drought and crop failure and death. What's with this? God's preparing his people. For those times when it's going good and then abruptly things start going bad, when the calm is replaced by chaos, when there's an unexpected collapse, when we thought everything was pretty stable. That's why the sermon title is the pinnacle to the pit drop. How do we respond in times like that? Well, let's look at verse 13 and make a couple of very important observations before we dig into the nitty-gritty here. First of all, did you notice that verse 13 starts with the word, when, not if. In other words, God says there's going to be times when He shuts things up, when what He commands, when what He sends is going to be difficult for His people to experience. And it may look at times like this like God's lost control. Like he has abandoned his people when in fact he's saying right in the middle of the mess, I am there. Another observation to make. Notice in verse 13, God gives three descriptions of what it's going to be like when it goes from good to bad abruptly. First, he says, no rain. That's living with a a deficit. It's when the normal cause and effect relationship cycle does not happen. So for them specifically, in this immediate situation here, it's when the expected seasonal rains don't come. In our day, it could be that our investments don't get the return that we thought. It's when our hard work does not give us the rewards that we thought we would get. It's when we anticipated God's blessing, but what we intend got almost feels like we've been cursed by Him. Living with a deficit, no rain. Second description there in verse 13. When the locusts devour, that's living with barrenness. An accident has severely damaged our assets. A swing in the economy shreds our our savings. That guy ran the red light and T-boned me, and now I can't even get to work. Barrenness. Or third, pestilence that kills. That's living with grief. An unexpected death has occurred. I mean, they went into the hospital on Friday. They were gone by Sunday. Or it may not even be a physical thing as much as maybe it was too, a relationship you've had with somebody else. And because of a difference of opinion, that relationship has abruptly died. Now again, remember the context. These people are in a deeply satisfying time of solidarity and focus and growth and accomplishment. God is simply warning them how quickly it can all fade. Life is going to bring at times sudden reversals. Life can abruptly become harsh and hard to a point where we are left with just trying to survive another day. In fact, Moses warned Israel that there would be times like this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 67, he describes it like this In the morning you shall say, Oh, oh, if only it was evening. And in the evening, you're gonna say, if only it was morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. So, how do we respond when we experience the pinnacle to the pit drop? Do we cringe into a fate, a fetal position and plead, God, please don't hit me again? Do we shake an angry fist at heaven? because he's not being fair? Or do we put our head down and just trudge on in despondent resignation that God is just going to do what God wants to do anyway? How are we going to respond? Let's go back to the text. It tells us. It encourages us. It injects hope into our lives when we face the pinnacle to the pit drop. Now, look at verse 14. Notice the structure here. There is an if-then structure. God lays out our response, but it's an if. That may not be the way we respond, but if we do, then God says, this is going to be my response. So let's look at both of those. What is to be my response when it's going good and abruptly things go bad? Verse 14 If my people who are called by my name, here it is, humble themselves. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word humble literally means to submit, to yield. In other words, the emphasis is on the submission of a proud, arrogant, or self-sufficient spirit that we have inside of us. Now, let's correct some skewed thinking. Humility, when it's used like this, is not denying the giftedness or abilities that you have been given. That's not humility. That's just denial. Nor is humility characterizing myself as a despised worm. Folks, that's shame, but that's not humility. Rather, humility, as I mentioned a minute ago, is rejecting this self-sufficient, independent mindset and lifestyle. So it's literally a surrendering. It's a releasing of the control over my life. Lucy and I have some friends back in Colorado, Dennis and Linda, and one night when we were having dinner with them, they were telling us about uh, their wedding and the start of their honeymoon. Um, So the very first morning after the wedding they were in the car trying to get out of downtown Dayton, Ohio, and get on the interstate so they could head to Florida. And Linda was driving. And according to Dennis, according to Dennis, I hope you hear this, Linda was not making the right turn or the correct turn to get on the fastest route to the interstate. So as a, any loving husband would do, He reached out and grabbed the steering wheel. (laughs) They just about got divorced on their first day of being married. Um, You know, the Bible is full of stories where God comes to men and women and asks them, Take your hands off the wheel. Trust me. Watch where I can lead. Watch where I will take this. But here's the problem. When we go from a pinnacle to a pit kind of a drop, when it goes from calm to chaos, any way you want to describe it, what's our natural tendency? We want to hang on to the wheel all the more. Because I know what's best. I know what's best for my kids. I know what's best in the use of my gifts. I know what's best in the pursuit of of my occupation or career. I know what's best in, in my marriage or in being single. I know what's best. And yet we're being told here in 2 Chronicles 7 at that very moment when things go from good, being very good, to abruptly being very bad. Don't give in to temptation. Release your grip on the wheel in humility. Even if you don't understand what happened, even if you don't understand why it happened, trust that your heavenly Father's hands have got it and relinquish the need to be in control. Now, to help us practically understand what humbling ourselves looks like, we are given three concrete expressions of humility here in the text. Notice how verse 14 describes them, and, and by the way, they're linked together like train cars behind the engine you have one and it helps with the second and the first and the second will help you because they're linked to the third watch first so we're to humble ourselves and what and pray literally talk to your heavenly father ask him for what you need be interceding on behalf of, of other people When it's going good and things abruptly go bad, it is a call for us to begin to pray. And go ahead, by the way, express your puzzling questions. God can handle it when you say, why me? Why this? Why now? Be honest about how much it hurts. Tell them where your pain level is with all of this. Let them know your struggles. Be open about your temptations that you're facing in all of this pray. It's the first step in what humbling looks like. And that initial act spills then into the second one. Notice, pray and seek my face. So if you combine those together, seeking my face then and prayer, it means that you, there is an intensely personal conversation going on because we're seeking His face. We're just not throwing words at the ceiling. This is about a relationship that we are engaged in, So, which means prayer is not a formula. If I pray this, A, and I pray B, I will get C. Nope, it doesn't work that way. And neither is prayer a magical spell to invoke, as if I use the right words, the right vocabulary, then poof, it will unleash divine power. No, that's not it either. Seek my face. Pursue this face-to-face relationship. Now, I realize in a COVID type of a pandemic issue, we've got masks on and that becomes strange and hard. But think back to before uh, the last 15 months. Um, When you get close to someone, you can see their face. When you're close to someone like that, you have their attention. And God says, draw near to me. I love reading in the Psalms, and I am constantly reminded of Psalm 27, 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Pray. Seek his face. Again, remember the linkage, though. Third, and turn from my wicked ways. Turning from your wicked ways, I recognize there's divine accountability. Because if in humility I'm praying to my Father in heaven, I'm seeking this intensely personal conversation with Him, then you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be reminded of something. He's God, and I'm not. I'm going to be reminded that He is sovereignly in control. I am not. I'm going to be reminded that he's about building his kingdom, and that's the story, with a capital T and a capital S. And my life is not the story, though I'm tempted to think that way, but rather my story needs to blend up into his larger story. And so prayer, you know what it does? It unfortunately does something at times painful but very good for us, and that is it reminds us of our pride. It reminds us of, my, of our self-centeredness, of my lack of love for others, my wanting to be served instead of to serve others. I become appalled at how little I really love my God wholeheartedly. It goes on and on. It's not easy to do, but boy, is that good for us. Humbly. pray, to seek his face, to turn from my wicked ways in repentance. Author and speaker Gordon MacDonald tells us that repentance is really not primarily a religious term. He says it comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic, and so they lived in a world where there were no maps, there were no street signs. And he says it's easy to get lost walking through a desert. And suddenly you become aware that the countryside is strange and unfamiliar. And so you say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction. And that's the first act of repentance. I recognize I'm going in the wrong direction. The second act of repentance is then to turn and go into an alternate direction. So to humble ourselves is not just mental gymnastics of things we think about. It's accomplished within a relationship with the God of heaven as we talk to Him, as we seek His face, and and those aspects then lead us to engaging in repentance because we're made aware of our wicked deeds. Now, remember I told you the construction of verse 14 is an if-then. Let's look at the then side of it. Let's look at God's promised responses. Now, What's fascinating is there were three humble acts asked of us. Notice now God says there are three responses I'll give to you. Each one corresponds back to one of our humble acts. So for example, we're asked in humility to pray. God says, well then I will hear. Now it's interesting the Hebrew word for hear is more than just having the hearing drums inside of our ears vibrate. You know that we we heard sound. The Hebrew word for hear means to then act upon what you've heard. So God is basically saying there in verse 14, I will hear from heaven. God says, I'm going to listen to you. Your words are not going to fall on deaf ears. That's why I love Isaiah chapter 64 starting at verse 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard. No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the aid or the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. God says, I will hear you. Second thing he says he'll do. When we seek his face, and that's the second response of, in humbleness we give, God says then, I will what? Forgive their sin. Forgiveness, removing the guilt, the shame, the self-hatred that we've got on the inside. And isn't that wonderful that we have the advantage of living on this side of the cross? The penalty for our sin being paid by the costly sacrifice of God's own Son being crucified in our place that we celebrated just a few weeks ago over the Easter weekend. So all of our sins, past, present, future, have been completely paid for and taken away for us, which means deep, deep forgiveness is the real experience for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. God says, I will forgive. And then there's a third response. When we turn from our wicked ways, God says, okay, then I will heal. Wounds will be healed. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's our Heavenly Father's heart. (laughs) Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God's response, I'll hear, I'll forgive, I'll heal. Oh, and by the way, there is one more promise. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So when things are going good and abruptly things go bad and God's people respond with humility which expresses itself in a prayer which seeks God's face and turns from his wicked ways, the eyes of God see that kind of prayer being offered and he will attentively hear it. And that's why we're encouraging everybody to be a part of this 21 days of prayer. In the recent years, Lakewood has experienced this. And maybe you're even feeling today like Lakewood is still experiencing some deficit, some barrenness, and some deep grief. Folks, will we respond in humility as the text asks us to? So let me explain a little bit about the 21 days of prayer and give you some details. First, why the length of of, of 21 days? Well, really, the, the, the length of 21 days is just simply because of something I read in Daniel chapter 10, starting at verse 12. Listen, listen to this. Daniel was praying and seeking God for understanding of some revelation that he, he had received. And here's what happened. An angel came to him and said, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So there was a heavenly battle going on. Daniel was praying, his prayer was heard, but there was a 21-day delay because of satanic opposition. So we're just going to go after it for 21 days. And that's going to cost us something. It's going to mean giving some time that could be used elsewhere, but you're going to dedicate it and say, I want to be a part of praying. Now, remember where we started? What we value is revealed in what we are willing to spend, what we're willing to say no to, and what we are willing to sacrifice for. 21 days. Starts tomorrow. How's it going to be structured? Well, let me talk about the three stages to the 21 days. The first week is going to focus on personal and corporate confession of sin and repentance. That's what the text asks us to do. Our God is holy, and that holiness means that he cannot bless, he cannot engage when there is sin. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but Rick, I didn't do anything in the life of our church that's been a part of things over the last maybe two or three years. It wasn't my choices. I was simply a spectator. I understand that thinking. But you know what? There, have been a, there are a lot of situations in the Scriptures where people, yeah, they were, they were spectators. It wasn't their choices. But guess what they did? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6. Nehemiah prays this. Oh, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. I'm confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Folks, he's talking about something that happened 70 years earlier. But he's identifying himself and saying, God, please come. We repent. That's what we're doing too. And it may not be that it was your choices. But what about your responses to the choices that were made? Ooh. Were there some sinful expressions that came out of you motivated by your pain, your grief, your disappointment, your anger? So part of this first week is going to be corporately going before God and saying, God, we repent. God, we, we want to know, are there any strongholds? And a stronghold is a pattern of sin that's not been identified and has not been addressed and dealt with. Lord, are there any strongholds that, Lord, you need to come and break? So at every level, whether it's personal, whether it is corporate, in the first week starting tomorrow, we're going to say, God, please come and purify us please make us aware of any sin, make me aware of any sin, and I'll identify it, and I'll confess it, and I'll repent. Lord, just speak to my heart. That's the first week. may not be easy for some of us. Let's go there together, though. Then in the second week, we'll shift. We're going to shift to focus on our love relationship with God and each other, really praying through specifically about the great commandment, as expressed in Mark 12, where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we're going to go in the second week, praying that God would make that real in us and among us. And then the third week will shift again. The third week will shift then to what's next for us. We're going to be asking God to move in our midst now to prepare us for what he has in mind that is yet ahead. But we need to be ready for it, even though we don't know what's necessarily coming ahead. So let me give you a couple of practical suggestions to keep in mind. These are just suggestions. Um, I would suggest that you get out your calendar or your device this afternoon and figure out when you can be praying and being a part of the 21 days of prayer the same time every day just block it in, lock it in there, and say, this is when I'm going to do it every day. Morning, noon, night, doesn't matter, but when. Second, give yourself plenty of time. In other words, don't rush this. There's going to be a prayer guide that you can get out at the table as you leave that will help you start tomorrow uh, with all of this. Or if you forget it today, you can go to our website. Uh, it's in the bulletin about where you can go find it electronically and download it. But don't rush the time. Um, don't, don't, don't put something at the back end that you're going to have to get to real quickly. Give yourself time. Third, find a quiet place to be by yourself to pray. In other words, leave your cell phone, your computer, your tablet. Walk away from those. Just have maybe your Bible and the prayer guide. Or you may want to, and this is another suggestion, you may want to journal the journey of these 21 days. Maybe you want to get a special notebook or a special pad of paper and, and write down the things that you believe God's talking to you about and engage with Him about. Which leads to the last suggestion I would have and that is make sure you're taking time to be silent as you pray. To say, Lord, speak to me. Is there anything you want to say? i God does want to meet with you, and there is something He wants to speak to your heart about. I mean, after all, in John chapter 10, over and over again, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. Or in speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, starting at verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear it now. But when the Spirit of truth comes... He'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So listen for him. What's he saying? There will be times when it's going good and abruptly things go bad. And as you look over the landscape of your life today, or you look over the recent history of the landscape of the church, it may look like there's a deficit, a very real aspect of barrenness, and maybe even some lingering grief. Don't get frantic. Don't get afraid or become afraid. Don't become fatalistic and for heaven's sakes, don't grab the wheel. (laughs) Instead, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I'll heal their Let's pray. Father, would you do that? Would this very thing that you mentioned thousands of years ago to Israel be our experience as a body of believers? We are your chosen people. Not because of anything we've done, not because we've earned it, but because of grace, and it's all by grace but we've become your children. You're our heavenly father and we rejoice in that relationship. So Lord, may we humble ourselves before you. Doing what this passage is outlined and Lord, we want to believe that then you are going to respond. So Father, not by human effort, not out of an attempt to manipulate, but Father, simply because we want to have the right posture before you. Lord, would you please hear our prayers over these next 21 days. And Father, would you act and act in a way where nobody gets the credit but you alone, that you're the one that gets the glory. Father, we know you love this church. And so, Father, would you care for us? Would you prepare us for what lies ahead? And Father, all we know to do is to be obedient to your word. And so we're going to come in kneeling posture because that's where our hearts want to be before you and humbly seek you. Oh, Father, and then may we be amazed at what happens from this point on as maybe one day we'll look back and say these 21 days was a turning point in the life of our church. Oh Father, do that we ask. We ask it boldly on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.